Well, the, this morning uh, we have a special guest. Terry Hibbert and his uh, wife Nancy have been attending here since the uh, summertime, and we had the joy of having them and some others over for some coffee and dessert this last week. Found out a little bit more about uh, atheist turned Christian turned pastor. Longtime pastor, retired uh, at the Presbyterian Church uh, a number of years ago. But I thought, hey, during the Christmas season, I'm sure that uh, Terry has a message uh, for us that he could share. And uh, he was more than uh, willing to do that. And so we appreciate you uh, coming this morning and sharing from God's Word with us. Just like to pray for you uh, as you're, you can come on up and then I will uh, pray for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the way that you are a God who not only called people, Lord, to follow you long ago, but you continue to do that, Lord, in our day. And we thank you, Lord, also for the opportunity, Lord, to open up your word. And I pray, Lord, your blessing upon Terry as he opens your word and shares with us this morning, Lord, the message that you have for us. Amen. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to spend some time worshiping with you. A Christmas is a time of many emotions uh, for each of us, and it depends on our particular situation, but generally it's one of celebration. And today, of course, society's purpose in celebrating Christmas has changed from what it originally was and way back in the time of Jesus' birth. And that focus has shifted, unfortunately, from Bethlehem to perhaps a more commercial and self-interest. And indeed, the idea that anyone is, in, is a sinner and in need of saving from that doesn't seem particularly joyful to many people, uh, and they don't simply accept it. It's a sad thing uh, for Christians to see. But Jesus said in John's Gospel that we are to be in the world and not of the world. We are to be witnesses to the world in which we live. And Jesus said he spoke such things to us so that his joy might reside within. And that's the theme of my message, our message this morning, the wonder of Christ's joy that he gives to everyone who would come to him. And that joy was experienced you know, by those who stood around the stable when Jesus was born. And also, interestingly enough, by some wise men uh, who lived in the east in Persia, part of Iraq, Iran today, that area of the world. And so I want to read to you first from Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, chapter 2, and reading the first 12 verses. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them at what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. Or when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Amen. Well, it's interesting that Matthew's account of Jesus' birth is actually quite limited. Uh, He spends more time in chapter 1 on the genealogy of Jesus, you know, from Abraham to Moses, David, and all the way up to our Lord's birth. And then the latter part of his uh, first chapter, he spends on the quandary uh, that Joseph had uh, dealing with the gal he was to marry was already pregnant, and they hadn't had any intimacy at all. And uh, then God appears in a dream to Joseph, saying, take to you Mary as your wife, that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And then Matthew concludes chapter 1 simply by saying, when Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, she named him Jesus. And then he switches to chapter 2. And in verse 1, he simply says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of Herod, a wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So, we have no traveling to Bethlehem from Nazareth because of a Roman census, uh, no lack of room in the inn, no stable, no shepherds, no heavenly choir. It's left to Luke to fill uh, that story in for us. But Matthew very quickly turns to the wise men. And during his description of the wise men's coming, at the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life, Matthew reveals two camps forming, two ideologies, if you will. One that is full of praise and welcome and joy, and the other full of hatred and opposition. King Herod and the Magi, they stand out in stark contrast to each other. It's a contrast that will deepen as Jesus lives his life on the way to the cross. And in effect, Matthew offers a warning here that receiving Christ as Lord and King will create opposition in our lives from the society in which we live. And in fact, this predates Jesus' own words to the Apostle Peter. Peter, back in Luke chapter 12, verse 41, asked Jesus a question as to why he's teaching in parables. And it's interesting how Jesus replies to him in verse 51 of Luke 12. Jesus says to Peter, and I quote, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather 
division. And that happens because not everyone wants to hear or to accept the offer of salvation that Jesus brings. And that, and in fact, Jesus goes on talking to Peter, saying where it's going to cause division, it's going to cause division within families, amongst friends, even churches. I mean, the whole Reformation was based on that division, and it's still happening today. And so this baby in a manger in Bethlehem was not going to simply be, you know, a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He had a mission to accomplish, a mission to save people from their sin and from the power of Satan, whom in John's Gospel 12 he called the prince of this world. So the stage is set at the very outset of Jesus' life. And as God says, to, says in Matthew chapter 1, speaking to Joseph in, in a dream, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. That's the issue. That's the task that was going to create so much conflict. But even if that was so, Jesus had a greater message that through Him and Him alone, every sin that we've ever been committed by any of us will be forgiven if we put our faith and our trust in Him. And that can bring a new joy into our life. That was why Jesus was born. And it's important not to lose track of that. And with that, we have the promise of eternal life. Once our life is over here on this earth, and some of us are closer to that now than when we once were, you know, we know where we're going. And we're going to be with our Lord and our Creator. No matter what opposition, no matter what persecution we may experience in this life. And that was the message of the angel chorus, glorifying God on the hillside outside Bethlehem. You remember the words, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of what? Of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now you and I in our day, there's a good chance that we'll experience at least some opposition, possibly even persecution, because of our faith. But as we live in obedience and faith in our Lord and Savior, we will experience that inner joy that the characters in that first birth experienced. The joy of the wise men as they fell down and worshipped our Lord, gave Him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But also there's something astonishing here in the beginning of chapter 2 and that we should not miss. First of all, is it not amazing that a group of men with really little to go on should venture so far from their homeland? You know, I mean, this was almost 2,000 years ago. And they were willing to endure the hardships associated with a journey from Persia to Israel, which is at least 600 miles. Now, I know camels can run pretty fast and they can go without water for a while, but man, they had to stop at oases along the way. And it was a challenge. Many uncertainties traveling through the desert like that. And yet, wanting to find the one who they saw this unusual star, and they understood that that was the star of a king, and they wanted to find him. 
But what's more is that more than likely their religious beliefs typically involved other gods, much as they did in Egypt. You know, they believe in a variety of them. And these guys tended to be more astrologers than astronomers, used to making decisions based on, you know, how they saw the stars aligned in the night sky. It's kind of much like people today who depend on horoscopes to direct their lives. And yet here they are. Now, they may well have, uh, because they were wise men, they may well have learned from studying Hebrew prophets as they did other uh, gods around them, that Israel was indeed waiting for a Messiah. But they didn't fully understand the depth of Israel's beliefs. And yet knowing somehow that this star in the sky signified a birth of the King of the Jews. And so they followed that star and bringing with them extremely costly gifts that were fit only for a king. And when they got to Jerusalem, you know, they started asking around, where can we find the king of the Jews? You know, only God could have put that thought in their hearts. They didn't grow up in, in, a, in Israel. They didn't grow up in a, what we would call a Christian context. Only God could have taken hold of them and led them into Bethlehem. And then arriving at the house where Jesus and his mother were, they offered him what could only be described as sincere worship, worship worthy of a king, and then presenting him with those gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the way, faith of these uh, wise men and their insight and their wholehearted search and desire to worship this child is amazing. I mean, these guys were basically pagans. And it's one of the many surprises that we find in the gospel that God truly wants to reach all kinds of people. You know, in the words of the English writer C.S. Lewis, in effect, these wise men were, quote, surprised by joy. In fact, Lewis goes on to say that joy is the serious business of heaven. It's a happiness that brings enduring worth to each of our lives. It's not the superficial joy that's dependent on our circumstances or at this time of year the material gifts we get at Christmas, but it's a contentment that is able to fill our souls even in the midst of the most distressing of circumstances, the most adverse environment. And there are many Christians around the world facing that today. And because, and these wise men also themselves faced a challenge, a challenge from Herod, because in Matthew verse 7, it's recorded that Herod, notice Herod called a private meeting with these guys. You know, he wanted to kind of keep it under wraps. And he told them to go to Bethlehem, seek out the child, and when they had found him, to come back so that he could come and worship Jesus too. And we know that wasn't his intention at all. In fact, he wanted this child killed. And child or not, he did not want another contender for the throne of Judah. And so in a dream, verse 12, God told the wise men not to return to Herod, but to leave town by another route. And that they did. And that in itself shows the gravity of which they understood the situation. And then, of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know, the real tragedy struck as 
God told Joseph in yet another dream to quickly leave, take his family with him, go to Egypt, which he did, because Herod had issued an order to kill all young male children two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Sometimes we gloss over that. You know, there's the joy of the birth, but boy, within a year or so, tragedy struck that community. And it seemed for a while that the joy and the hope that Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, the wise men, had experienced at his birth was being dashed. But again, even in the darkest times, it is good for us to remember that God will never leave us nor forsake us. And you see that theme throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. The Hebrews under Moses, I mean, they spent 40 years in the desert before entering the promised land. And the very last words in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a wonderful promise. I love what he says in, in uh, John chapter 10, I think it's verse 28, where he says, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. That's a tremendous promise. I mean, Satan may get to us and he may trip us up and we may do things we know we shouldn't, but no one, not even Satan, can reach down and grab you back. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. You know what? What may sound a rather tough verse uh, in Scripture regards joy uh, is found in James chapter 1, verse 2. And James says at the outset of his letter, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So people can look at that and say, you've got to be kidding. I mean, who's joyful in the midst of upset and tragedy? But it's another reminder and you get these verses throughout Scripture where God is reminding us He'll be always with us. That no matter how dark times can be and life can be, through faith, patience, and trust in the Lord, things will work out. He will provide a way through. And even though at the time it may seem that all joy was gone, but God has not left us. He is always there, regardless. And that's part of the joy, part of the message, the love, the peace, the hope of Christmas time. Well, I'd like to share with you a couple of short stories um, that in their own way reflect the joy and the wonder of Christmas. Uh, both are true stories. They happened in the uh, early to mid-20th century. Happened to people. You know, people just like you and me. Uh, if you've happened to hear these stories, please bear with me. But as I said earlier, it's interesting how God will at times use people who do not initially know Him uh, or, or believe in Him. Now, it's most likely the wise men were when they left their country. And as God worked in the hearts of those men, something like that seems to have happened in this first story. Story comes from the uh, movie director Cecil B. DeMille, who tells of an unscripted event that occurred during the filming of the original movie, King of Kings. It was back in Hollywood, 1927. And DeMille tells it this way. He says, it was Christmas Eve on the set of King of Kings, 
We just completed scenes depicting the crucifixion and the earthquake that followed. It was late, and we were about to quit for the day. Everyone was tired and hungry. Some had rolled in the dirt. They had seen three men on the cross, the good thief, the bad thief, and in all its glory, the crucifixion of Jesus. They had been taxed emotionally, worn physically. They were anxious to go home. And among 2,000 people on that stage, every class, every faith, every type of human being were represented. There were atheists who believed nothing. There were rough, tough, burly individuals who had been portraying Roman soldiers. It was truly a mixed multitude. The stage was made of glass. And by the way, it was an outdoor stage at that time. The stage was made of glass, and the light was beginning to fade as I turned to them. I called their attention to the fact that they were standing beneath the cross on Christmas Eve. So let's take five minutes to think, I said. It'll be five minutes of silence. Those of you who want to can pray. Those of you who don't believe and are just waiting, think of your mothers or something you might find inspiring. And you could see the different expressions. Some of them were annoyed and anxious to get away. But the light continued to fade, and soon the only light was on the cross. An organ had been playing on set to create atmosphere while we were shooting, and the organist started playing again softly. One by one, people dropped to their knees. Others began to sing. And soon, almost a third of that company was on its knees before the cross. The light was almost gone. The cross could be seen against the sky. And even today, I cannot recall that scene without emotion. I saw tears on the faces of hard-boiled extras, some of them Roman soldiers who only a few minutes before had been rolling dice at the foot of the cross. I heard women sob. And in five minutes, that huge Hollywood stage was transformed into a cathedral. By then, everyone's face was stained with tears. It was as if the presence himself had come. I've never seen anything more moving. It was the most memorable Christmas Eve of my life. And you know, sometimes we forget that the cross is foreseen in the birth of Jesus. And the name, you know, given to the baby in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, reminds us that it is through the cross his greatest accomplishment was achieved. And the joy of Christmas, because of what he was to achieve, the joy of Christmas can be sustained in our lives. Not just one day or one month in the year, but every day of every year that we live. Well, the second story captures the uh, wonder and joy of Christmas in perhaps a slightly different way, but how God can really work at times in people's lives. This was the experience of a 20th century best-selling author, Taylor Caldwell. She's written a number of uh, religious novels. 
And she tells a time in her life when things were not so bright and not so joyful. And this was her experience. Recently, she begins, I was separated from my husband. I was in my 20s and had no job. I was a single mother with a young daughter, Mary. And I was on my way downtown in the late spring rain to go the rounds of the employment offices. I had no umbrella, but I sat down on the streetcar, and there against the seat was a beautiful silk umbrella. It had a silver handle inlaid with gold and flecks of bright enamel. I'd never seen anything so lovely. Now, my first impulse was to give the umbrella to the conductor, but for some mysterious reason, I decided to take it with me and find the owner myself. I got off the streetcar in a downpour and thankfully opened the umbrella to protect myself. And then I searched a telephone book for the name on the umbrella to find it. And I did, and I, I called, and the woman answered. Yes, she said in surprise, that was her umbrella. Her parents, now dead, had given it to her as a birthday present. But she added it was stolen more than a year ago. I went to her house, and she wanted to give me a reward, but her joy was sufficient. And though I had but $20 in all the world, I refused her offer. Well, we talked for a while, and I must have given her my address. I, I don't remember. The next six months were wretched. I was able to obtain only temporary employment here and there for a small salary. But I put aside 25 or 50 cents when I could for my little girl's Christmas presents. And my last job ended the day before Christmas. My rent was coming due, and I only had $15. And unless a miracle happened, I'd be homeless in January. Soon after I was home at Christmas Eve, the doorbell rang. It was a delivery man. His arms were full of parcels. Mary and I sat on the floor and opened them. A huge doll, gloves, candy, and a beautiful leather purse. It was incredible. And I looked at the name of the sender, and it was the umbrella woman. Well, hours later, I put Mary to bed, and a sweet peace flooded me like a benediction. And then I opened the mail that had come that day, two envelopes. One contained a check for $30 from a company I'd worked for briefly in the summer. It was my Christmas bonus. The other envelope was an offer for a permanent position with the government to begin two days after Christmas. I sat with the letter in my hand, the check on the table, and just praised God for the most wonderful Christmas Eve I've ever had. You know, Jesus has a way of reaching into our individual lives if we let him. And I know some people will look at these stories, even the story of Jesus' birth, and say, well, coincidence, pure emotionalism, that's all it is. But to do that is to miss out on the reality and the joy of Christmas. And whether or not, you know, life is going well for you at the time, this time it is still worth seeking the real meaning of Christmas and to seek the Christ child as the wise men did, to let him speak to you through your situation 
as he did theirs, as he did in Taylor Caldwell's life, as he did on that huge Hollywood stage, as he did in the lives of Joseph and Mary, the shepherds. For so often, it's in the quiet times, the contemplative moments of Christmas, that we find true meaning, true joy of God's love and God's presence. Amen. And let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you again for this season. And may we not let the busyness of this time of year deter us from letting the Lord Jesus touch our lives and truly have a dwelling place in our hearts. For as your word says, our bodies are the temple of your Holy Spirit who dwells within. And Lord, would you interact with each one of us this season that we might truly experience the joy of Christmas at a deeper level and experience it throughout our lives. And through that joy, Lord, to truly be your witnesses to those around us. And so we thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.